Hi, this is Welcome to Self, caring for the human in the therapist chair. And I'm your host, Dr. Haley D. Quinn, fellow human, clinical psychologist, supervisor, and trainer. Welcome to Self is a place where you can come and learn ways to elevate your own care and compassion. A place to rest and be soothed. A place to remember that you are human first and choose the helping profession as just one of the roles in your life. My aim is that this is a place of soothing, comfort, nourishment and nurture. A place where you can also welcome yourself. take a moment of gratitude for Maggie, who sent me feedback on the podcast. She said, I have listened with much pleasure and curiosity, taken many notes, shared it with colleagues, and will be playing it on repeat for some time to come. Thank you for taking the time to send feedback and for sharing the podcast with others, Maggie. It is really appreciated. I'm excited to introduce my next guest, Dr. Robin D. Walser. Robin is Director of TL Psychological and Consultation Services, Assistant Professor at the University of California, Berkeley, and works at the National Center for PTSD. As a licensed psychologist, she maintains an international training, consulting and therapy practice. Robin is an expert in acceptance and commitment therapy and has co-authored six books on ACT, including a book on Learning ACT. She has most recently written a book entitled The Heart of Act, as well as a book on moral injury. She has expertise in traumatic stress, depression and substance abuse, and has authored a number of articles, chapters and books on these topics. She has been doing ACT workshops since 1998, training in multiple formats and for various client problems. I had the pleasure of attending an act for trauma training that Robin did in Brisbane many years ago. And not only her extensive knowledge, but her warmth and generosity of spirit during that training is what I remember about her. So it is my great pleasure to welcome Robin to the podcast, and I hope you really enjoy this episode. So welcome, Robin, and thank you so much for joining me on Welcome to Self, Caring for the Human in the Therapist Chair. It's an absolute thrill for me. Um, I remember coming to a training, as I was saying to you just before, which might be six years ago when you came and did a training on ACT and trauma in Brisbane, which was fantastic. So this is a real thrill for me. So thank you so much for for joining me. Uh, Well, thank you for inviting me, Healy. It's a real pleasure. Thank you. Fantastic. So if we could just start with perhaps if you'd just tell us a little bit about yourself and what what it was that drew you to the helping professions. And I I always find it interesting as well to sort of see, you know, other things you've done or what you might have done if you hadn't become a psychologist. Oh, that's really interesting. Well, so I'm Robin Walser and I've been doing, I've been in psychology now 
since the 80s, <laughs> so a long time. I got my um, doctorate in 1998 and did my first ACT workshop in 1997. And I've been doing those since. So I've just across time sort of built a trajectory in that area. And in some ways, think I kind of had a bit of serendipity because if I'd had an alternate life, right, if I had decided to do what I first started thinking about doing, I would have become a surgeon. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I had, when I was quite young, I looked at my mom, who was a beautiful, lovely woman, but who worked so hard and, you know, never really worked out of worked her way out of poverty. And so I just kept thinking, I need to get into a profession that's not going to keep me here in this space. And my mom would say to me, you can do anything, you can become anything you want. And I was like, I'm going to be a doctor. And we talked for hours. And I would say, I'm going to be a medical doctor. And then I got into undergraduate school. And I chemistry just kicked my butt if I can say that (laughs) like I I could do the physics I could do the science the biology all of that stuff but when I got to chemistry there was something about it that wouldn't click for me and of course in order to go to med school you have to have a get good grades in chemistry and I was just getting C's that wasn't going to get me there so I was taking some psychology courses and I was working in a rat lab of all things. So I did a student study for paying for my school by working in a rat lab. I trained rats to run mazes. And I (laughs) just at one point said, I think I'm going to shift because Mm. this medical thing is not working out. And I'm glad I did because years later, of course, I went to study with Steve Hayes at the University of Nevada, Reno. And I, the serendipitous part is I didn't know Steve when I went to Reno. I, and I assume your listeners know that Steve Hayes is the developer of acceptance and commitment therapy. But I went to a workshop that he gave and that was it. It changed my life. My whole path shifted in that workshop. And I worked with him and I shifted from the lab I was in into his lab and um, worked with him and now find myself here, you know, years later, having become very involved in ACT and delivering workshops around the world and writing books and all that crazy stuff. Yeah. Do you know there's so many kind of life-changing stories within the ACBS community? You sort of hear that people were on one pathway and then something happened and then they kind of discovered these things and it, it becomes very life-changing. It's quite beautiful. But that's quite a shift for you as well. It's a lovely story. And, yeah. and I'm very glad that you did shift as well. <laughs> you know, actually, I think I am too. Thank you. <laughs> I think this suits me better. <laughs> uh, I think, you know, I, I've certainly very much enjoyed your trainings and your books and you, you are very highly regarded within the ACBS community and um, you're an asset to the field. So thank you for shifting. Very, very kind words. Thank you. So you've recently co-authored a book. Um, mm-hmm. You've got a number of books, but you've recently co-authored a book on moral injury. 
Um, what is it that inspired this particular book? And could you also define moral injury for us? Sure. So why don't I um, start with the definition of moral injury, and then I'll say a little bit more about how I got into it. Mm -hmm. So moral injury is when by withholding an action or taking an action, you violate a deeply held value in some way that's very impactful. And these usually occur under conditions of traumatic events mm -hmm. or a, a highly um, intense situation where people's lives are on the line. And so you choose a, an action that you wouldn't have chosen otherwise given the circumstances. And that you end up feeling um, guilty. There's sort of moral pain that follows the injury. And then I would say that what happens is, is that people then get into the shame and pain of the moral violation and they stop functioning well in their lives. And so that's sort of the full trajectory of it. And since I've been working in the field of trauma and uh, have spent a fair bit of time working with veterans, because um, I worked at the National Center for PTSD in the States, I kept hearing stories of moral violation where uh, veterans would say, it's not the bomb, it's not the, you know, my, my life being at risk that bothers me so much. It's the time that I had to pull the trigger when I, my gun was pointed at a crowd of women and children. Mm -hmm. Right, so they ended up uh, wounding or killing innocent people and then feeling very morally um, guilty and ashamed of um, being in that situation. Now, it's not that they just did it randomly, right? Like typically yeah. somebody who they were after was running through a crowd of people or using them as shields or something like that. But um, those are, that's just one example. There's many kinds of like witnessing an atrocity and not stopping it or engaging in an atrocity yourself because you get swept up into the anger and the intensity of war. It can be the action that you take or actually inaction. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So you witness something and you don't do anything about it. Yeah. Um, so and. You know, it can occur outside of war, too. For instance, mm -hmm. let's say you're a parent and you're driving and you, you're texting while you're driving and you get in a car accident and um, one of your children dies and you, you know, you're doing something that you is not about protecting your children, texting yeah. while driving. Maybe, and this is even a harder thing, uh, uh, where... Um, Maybe a woman is giving birth to twins and one twin isn't going to survive. Yeah. And therefore she lets the baby just starve or, um, and it's where we're seeing some of this kind of activity now is in the, with COVID happening yeah. is um, medical professionals are having to make decisions about who gets to be on a ventilator and who doesn't and who has a yeah. more likely 
chance of survival and who doesn't. And decisions are being made in really challenging and difficult circumstances. And sometimes people are ending up saying, I can't believe we're doing this, right? And you can feel that it's going against their their values or having to pick who lives, right? Like those are yeah. really, really awful experiences that people can feel guilt and shame over for yeah. ages. Yeah. So what was it that kind of inspired the book and how did that come about? Because there's a number of you that are authors on the book, isn't there? Well, so I should give um, due credit to some wonderful people who I worked with in my life. And so Kent Drescher and I worked together and he was had a, a bit, an interest in moral injury for much longer than I did because he worked with a gentleman named David Foy, um, and the he was at. I'm I'm hoping I'm going to remember um, remember this university in California. It's going to be on the tip of my tongue, but I, if I think of it, I'll say it. <laughs> and um, I want to say Fuller Fuller University. That might be it. Anyway, th- he was on these dissertations where they were looking at moral injury, and he and I started having conversations about it, and. We were thinking about the veterans that we were treating and how the PTSD treatment just didn't seem to be enough because it's Mm -hmm. typically fear-based treatment, right? Like let's expose to the fear and um, have new learning occur, but people were still feeling a lot of game and uh, guilt and shame and feeling like that wasn't getting addressed. So Kent and I um, formed a collaboration and then we brought in... um, a postdoc who worked with us, uh, Jacob Farnsworth, and we developed ACT for uh, moral injury and we ran a couple of groups and then Jake Mm -hmm. left and he got connected with some other people and Wyatt Evans showed up and we grew into this collaboration where we decided to put in for a grant and Lauren Borges is the um, PI on the grant. Uh, the principal investigator, we got funded and we're now looking at ACT for MI in a funded grant study. But in that process, yeah, in that process of coming together and looking at what we were learning, we decided to go ahead and and write a self-help book for folks. Which is is wonderful and I'd highly recommend people to to read it. I I read it and whilst it's challenging, yeah. And, you know, I think the start of the book is confronting with some of the examples that you speak about. Um, and the exercises are challenging because, of course, the, the topic of what we're looking at is challenging. But it's a very easy to read book. Yeah. I, I actually enjoyed reading it. I found it really easy to read. And then, like I say, the, the exercises were more challenging, but well, that would be expected. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. So how how might we recognize moral injury in ourselves and for our clients? Well, sometimes it's hard with clients because mm-hmm. with shame, we're more likely to stay quiet, like shame yeah. invites secrecy. Yeah. And so there can be some really fascinating things that happen there. Like people can be in therapy for two, three years before saying, oh, by the way, I've got this thing I need to share with you, right? And so, I mean, some people will come for that very issue, but some will hold on to it for a very long time. And it's not 
always easy to identify if the individual isn't sharing the event. You can ask, you know, are there things that you're ashamed of that you'd rather not say, you know, depending on the quality of your relationship and how things are going and if um, it seems relevant, right? Um, But identifying it within ourselves is, like, we all feel guilty at times, right, for little violations here and there where we maybe we told a little white lie or we ran a red light or something like that right like that that might be I don't know do you guys have red lights there there's you know here we have yeah it's against the law to run a red light yep same (laughs) a lot of or like as a teenager maybe you shoplifted a little something right so there's there's those kinds of things that we can feel guilt about and that guilt is good it tells us that we don't want to do those things but then there's things that we've all done I would say that sort of tip over further into that place of I, I did something that I'm not proud of and so you can sort of feel the continuum right and that not proud of spaces getting harder and then um if you feel yourself saying like I did something that I wish I never would have done and it's causing me a lot of shame and grief. Then you've, then you're probably closer to the moral injury, injury territory. And particularly if it happened under circumstances that were, you know, life and death or really intense, because that's when we make some um, you know, really quick split decision sometimes. And doing that is, um, you're more likely under those kind of, you know, very intense circumstances to be torn and but yet have to do something really quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, like a good example might be of a soldier who is protecting a green zone I don't know if folks know what a green zone is but it's a safety zone and you look at who's coming towards the safety zone so that you can keep it safe and let's say somebody it sends a 12 year old child walking towards the safety zone and you can't tell if they're wearing a, a jacket that's got a bomb on it yeah and you're yelling at them to stop and they don't stop you just have you know seconds to make a decision and then you if you pull the trigger and they're not wearing a bomb then it can really cause people uh, a lot of distress around pulling the trigger and wishing they had known yeah yeah Yeah. You, you speak in the book as well of examples where the injury had it was where people had been violated against as well. It wasn't their action. It was action of others to them. Yeah, absolutely. So this can include things like being ordered to do something that violates your values or feeling betrayed by others, like following them and trusting them. And then they something happens where your values are violated in a significant a way based yeah. on something that they did yeah. and so yes it can also be a betrayal kind of moral injury as well yeah 
So when we think as, as helping professionals, how can we take care of ourselves when we are working with clients addressing moral injury? Because like I say, with, with the book, I think some of the examples are quite confronting in the book. And doing going through the exercises for myself, I found challenging reflecting on some of the things that happened in my life. Um, and these are the areas when we're working with clients that are the more difficult stories to hear, aren't they? Um, and you know, my focus is, you know, how do we take care of ourselves as helping professionals? We, we need to keep sort of one eye on the client and one eye on ourselves. So how can we best kind of take care of ourselves when we are doing this sort of work? Because this is not easy work, is it? It is not easy because you're hearing stories that are probably the most painful stories that yeah. people will have in their lives, um, especially if a life was lost or multiple yeah. lives were lost as a result of something you did or you know were ordered to do and can be very confronting and painful and to hear them sometimes you might even find yourself judging them or you know minds will do that it's like part of the deal and so the thing quite honestly that I have found most useful for myself because I've heard numbers of you know hundreds or if not thousands of these stories And I use ACT on me. And so I want to, I remain open in there and diffused. So I'm not, it's not that, and I'm very present. I want to hear every word that the client is telling me. Um, And I don't um, get into a place of like telling them that my mind is having a judgment. I just notice Oh, there it is. And I let it pass. Yeah. And I really uh, stand in that place of I am larger than with selfish context place, right? I am more than any experience that I have or that I hear. And so I don't attach. I can remember many of the stories. Some of them I don't remember because there's been so many, right? But some of them I remember because they're really powerful. But I'm I'm very careful around this is a story that I can hold and hear. It is not a story that is a part of me. It's not my story, right? This is an experience that I'm having, not something that I need to cling to in some way, especially if I'm going to remain effective myself and be effective for the client. Yeah, I think that's explained really well in the book as well, where you talk about the uh, the place called self. Yeah, um, I love that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, and, and that we are we are not all the experiences. We're more than all the different experiences we have. I know for me, one of my practices from very early in in working was coming home and literally saying to myself, "Everything I've heard today is not my experience." this is my life and I would look around and sort of look at my family and look at my home and think about the things in my life to remind me that all those things that I that I take on and listen to like you say are stories of others that I hold but they're not my life and I've found that really helpful I think that's incredibly helpful way to do it is like these um I'm more than this and 
you know, if we can hold those stories without clinging to them, I think we're going to be in a much better place to assist our clients. Because then the judgments don't carry us away or something like that. And typically, if they're coming in the room, right, it's because they are suffering a great degree behind what happened. They're already punishing themselves. And so um, we want to sort of step away from that place and offer compassion rather than punishment yeah and I think you make a really good point though raising the fact that our minds may well judge because people may be talking about things they have done that also go against our values that's right and our mind is going to judge and then we don't want to be judging ourselves for judging the client we don't even get all <laughs> self-critical in the room of like oh I'm such a bad therapist <laughs> I just had this thought about my client this is normal isn't it I mean this is yeah. what the human mind does so just again holding that all gently it's like ah there's my mind judging okay back to listening to what's happening in the room precisely I mean I I always get a little chuckle out of people who say don't judge your clients and I'm like who do I know you know and it's that they that we do judge but it's not that we're going to hold it right and and operate on it and hopefully um but judgment will be in the room. You can't stop that machine. Yeah, absolutely. So you you talked you touched on values before, and you certainly talk about it in the book. Um, and I think you know, spoiler alert, I know the answer. Um, <laughs> how important are values when working through moral injury? Um, and what are your favourite ways of helping people to connect with their values? I think that um, you cannot do moral injury work without values work. And so, because when you think about what's happening morally, there's some really fascinating um, information around this, like moral pain and moral responses are social and they're shaped, but they're also in intrinsic and come before the verbal process. Like, Like you can get disgust before you actually start saying oh that's disgusting right like Mm. it shows up very uh, quickly and um so when i think about how we come to live our values and organize ourselves around values you know they seem like they're sort of with us from the start And then our social verbal community builds on top of some of those, not all of them. Some of them are completely social and verbal, but some of them are like part of how we have evolved, frankly. Maybe you've seen like, like maybe fairness in the chimpanzees with the grape and the cucumber have you seen that on youtube you know where the chimpanzee gets all upset because it got a cucumber instead of a grape like there's yeah. a fairness thing that's sort of yeah built in and you can you can sort of see how that rises into our experiences more broadly when we're talking about values and so when we violate those it is the very thing that Like when you talk about the pain of the violation, Mm -hmm. it is directly linked to the value. So you just Mm -hmm. can't escape talking about values when you're doing this kind of work. Mm -hmm. So if someone is saying, my shame is so intense and so terrible and I deserve 
to die or I deserve to be punished or something like that, I might ask, you know, what does the shame tell you is important to you? And what you discover is like the value (laughs) that I violated. So it's just like inherent kind of built in. And um, when I'm working with clients in this territory, like something that I might have them do is to notice that very thing that we just talked about, like what value got violated and if you can do the things and act where you're diffused and open and willing, you can return to your value. Yeah. Because part of what happens and like bring it back to life again, because part of what happens is people have a moral injury and then they shut down and all of their values sort of disappear or stop being lived because they're so withdrawn and pulled in or, they're punishing themselves, but not realizing that punishing yourself also punishes others. Does that make sense? If like, I'm always in a, I need to be punished and I'm a terrible person and I'm in relationships with people, Mm. them being around me is also unpleasant, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that sense of disconnecting from people, isn't it? I don't deserve to be around others. Um, I am bad. Yeah. Um, kind of keeping yourself distanced and disconnected well and I think the other thing that is hard to appreciate sometimes when you're thinking about doing psychotherapy is that when we're doing this work we're not going in there to reduce the shame and guilt if that happens great we we don't we don't have any sort of problem with that we're We go in there to talk about how that tells you that you're human and that you care and that you don't want these kinds of things in your life. And so now how do you get back to the other side of that injury? And that can be really powerful work for folks. Yeah. Like getting them back to living full and meaningful lives. Yeah. With the history that they've got. With the the experiences that they've had. Yeah. yeah it's beautiful work and it, it's really I think really um well set out in the book as well I, I really enjoyed reading that we we had we had a fun time writing it not always I mean writing books is not always the, the best time in the world but um we're we're very proud of it and uh, uh, uh liked the finished product and we hope that whoever might be suffering from a moral violation or even feeling ashamed it doesn't have to be that you know you killed somebody but even feeling ashamed of you know something that you've done I think the book can be helpful that that was my sense of reading it that it doesn't have to be the the kind of extreme end of the continuum there there was all sorts of things that are different clients coming to mind different things from my own life coming to mind of like actually this could all be applied to these things at different levels um, so I thought that was it was good, and like I say, really easy read despite the challenging exercises throughout. <laughs> well, and yeah, no, we wanted the exercises to be challenging, yeah. partly because you know if you're going to do work in this area, like psychological emotional work, yeah. it's got to have some in, meaning to it, right? And some yeah. oomph, some, uh, and so we wanted them to confront people in a in a way but not it's a soft confrontation right but a a confrontation yeah about 
who are you and what do you want to do? And, and then talking about shameful things is hard. You know, like if I said, Hey, Haley, tell me the most shameful thing you've ever done right now. You'd be like, what? Well, how about no? <laughs> how about, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't think so. Right. And if you asked me the same question, I'd be like, is the interview over? Are we done? Yeah, like, you know, have we hit stop yet? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's hard to say those things. Yeah. But I think, you know, talking about the exercises, and you touch on compassion in the book as well as a, as a piece of this work. But I think, you know, the exercises are compassionate. Because it, it compassion isn't just all, you know, let's sit and have a cup of tea and be kind to each other. It's let's really look at this, because if you look at this and explore this and can get to the other side of this, you can have the life that you want. Yeah, exactly. You know? So I think it was really gently challenging exercises. Um, so I think, you know, in terms of anybody who is experienced a moral injury themselves or are working with clients, this would be a great book for people to to get hold of. I'll put certainly put a link in the um, show notes to it as well. Wonderful. So thinking thinking about moral injury and burnout in terms of perhaps with clients, but more so for for this podcast, in for therapists working with moral injury, what what are the links between this kind of work and burnout for therapists? Well, it like we were talking earlier, it can have a little bit of a heavy toll. In addition to sort of being open to hearing them, there's a couple things you want to do to sort of stop the burnout because you can get into that place, right? Or compassion fatigue or feeling like, oh, I can't hear another one of these. Or you just sort of Mm -hmm. start feeling numb yourself and get into that place where it feels like nothing that you do matters or you don't have an impact. That's a burnouty place. Mm after hearing these stories and seeing people struggle and hopefully making change, but some won't. And that can be a bit discouraging when you're really hopeful that they might change. Things might change for them. Um, My like top recommendation for like staving off burnout is get supervision and consultation. Yeah. And get training like those two things supervision consultation and training actually there's research that shows that those are some of the best ways because what happens is you feel more effective in the therapy room and if you feel more effective in the therapy room then you feel less burned out yeah when we stop feeling effective and we're not making an impact and we're doing the same thing so another thing you can do is like you know, mix up your clients a little bit in terms of the cases that you see. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really important point is looking at your caseload, like number of clients, which during this pandemic has been really hard for people. Um, and I even thought about that when I was kind of thinking about the whole moral injury, where people are having to turn, and I'm sure it's the same over in the US, but certainly here in, in Australia, people are having to turn away clients constantly. Um, now, there could be risk to some of those clients, and people are feeling a lot of kind of guilt around not being able to take on everybody and I think this is having a big toll as well so I think thinking about the number of clients you have the types of clients you have and I think when we access good supervision and consultation we don't feel as low alone particularly in private practice where you're in the just the room one-on-one with your clients or one on a few if you if you do family therapy um, or couples therapy 
but you you don't feel as alone when you know you've got a supervisor as well. You're like, okay, I know I've got somebody who I can talk to this case about and I can get a little guidance. We can brainstorm together and Mm. think about where to go. Like, can you just feel the self-efficacy in that, right? Like, okay, I'm not out here sort of dangling inside of self-doubt. A self-doubt by itself isn't a problem. Like, you know, actually self having a little self-doubt is good, but it's yeah. when you get in those really big places like I'm not helping anybody and yeah. I'm a I'm a crap therapist and you mm. know all the things that people say to themselves when they get in those drained, burned out places. And I think you're right, during the pandemic, it's been incredible. Here in the US yeah. too, like so many people seeking services and just yeah. not enough therapy to go around. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you find are your biggest challenges in terms of taking care of yourself as a practitioner? Because I think often, particularly for like new practitioners coming through, I think they perhaps look at people who have been doing this for longer and they think that we're all just perfectly fine at taking care of ourselves. We've got it all together. We know all the stuff, which is just not true. Hey, We're all human and we all struggle and we all have good days and bad days. So what are your biggest challenges, do you think, in terms of you taking care of yourself as a practitioner? Um, I'm a yes person. And right. uh, And I say yes to almost everything. And there's something really good about that. Right. Like it's I want to contribute. I want to be part of the community. I want to help I want to receive like there's something very nice about that but there's probably times when I should say no for instance I had I think three emails today where people were requesting me to do something and it would have been really good for me to say no to all three and I didn't right so Mm -hmm. like I keep uh, you know. By the way, I love doing the podcast, so don't worry about that. <laughs> I'm going to say, well, you saying yes, this is great for me. Exactly. No, no, well. no, no. It, this kind of stuff is so easy, and it's, we're just here chatting. And it's really nice. But when you're, it's usually things like, I need you. Would you get this project together for me, or would you be willing to be on this uh, study and do these things? Like you know, things that are heavy lifts, and. Um, so, uh, and I, I think there's sort of a funny thing about helpers like us is that we feel like we're being selfish if we say no, or we take some downtime or, you know, we, we feel bad about not helping people. And I think we just have to like, let that be, let that float on through mm-hmm. and, you know, do take care of yourself too and I've always said this if you're going to live your values you got to live them both ways towards yourself and towards others and so if you're going to be loving towards others be loving towards yourself and what does that mean and I'll ask myself that question okay what I've been what do I do here and I'll get a I'll when I do that I'm a little better at saying okay I'm going to take the time and take some time off and I'm going to rest and you know I'll shut down in the evenings and I'll go and do something that I really enjoy I garden a lot because I the garden fuels me and I love being in nature and I guess I should mention I have 
three dogs oh, <laughs> that are not in the room right now, but I have three, three dogs and they are so joyful and fun. And when I'm with them, we just go walking and we yeah. play and it, that's a great way for me to sort of back yeah. out of all of the um, heavy workload that can lead to, you know, that I need to do self-care in those spaces. And that's how I do yeah. it. Learn from your dogs. They know how to be I, mindful and in the moment, don't they? <laughs> they they are amazing. Like, you know, they're happy if they have a little toy on the floor that they can bring over yeah. and show you in a really proud way or something like that. So uh, yeah. I, they do remind me. It's like, oh, your life can be simple. It can be simple. Yeah. Yeah. And joyful. I'm not, I, um, I was diagnosed with chronic illness many years ago now, um, which I see as a blessing because it actually – got me to a place where I, I actually do feel comfortable saying no and I do yeah. focus a lot on my own self-care hence the podcast and the, the work that I do now but I was having a conversation with my husband this morning and I was offering to make him a cup of tea before coming to do this and he said oh but you don't have time I said I do have time I wouldn't have offered if I don't have time I said come on you know me now I don't say yes to things I don't want to do yeah um, that's really good <laughs> so, so I'm going to turn something on you it feels a bit weird to do this to Robin Walsh yeah yeah right? no and please do Robin I wonder what it would be like if you could set aside yourself some time to reflect on your values and then bring that into the times when you read your emails and maybe I, for 2022 that could be your practice that's <laughs> a beautiful beautiful suggestion and I'm on it. Like, I uh, think that's a, like, when I'm looking at my emails, I need to be like, what are my values for me? What are my values for me? Yeah, I think that that's really a, a, a wonderful thing to do. And, and all, we all should do that, right? And get in there and be more aware. Uh, and I think the pressure to produce is so yeah. high these days, right? That people, of Need course, and particularly particularly for somebody like yourself. I mean, you you are going to have people saying, can you, can you, can you, please? Um, and and I think when people know that you're somebody that will say yes, they'll come to you because they know yeah. you can say yes. Say yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a shock to people, Robin. Like, I need to no. I need to send like big letters, right? N O <laughs> <laughs> So, so I was going to ask, you know, if there was something you could change about the way you would work, what would it be and why? Well, I, it's interesting that you ask, and I'm in the process of doing this, is that I'm okay with working kind of a longer day. Um, it, it doesn't bother me. I quite enjoy most of the work that I do. I do want more free time. And so I'm in the process of restructuring and thinking about how to get I used to have a three-day weekend like for years I did Friday Saturday Sunday and you know work just creeped into the Fridays and sometimes on the weekends so I'm moving back to the three-day I'm doing some restructuring that's going to allow me to do that Mm. It won't be here for another few months, but it's coming. And the other thing that I do, and I do this regularly and I've been doing it for a long time, is I have um, no computer days. Nice. So I will pick a Saturday or a Sunday and whichever day it is, I do not get on the computer. 
I just stay away from the computer. I, and some of those days I even leave my phone behind so that I'm not on my phone. So I can have a day where I'm not, you know, at work and staring at a screen uh, because we're doing so much of that these days with, you know, COVID. And I think yeah. the world has changed permanently that, you know, around these things. And um, so I love the no computer day. Mm. It's like my favorite day of the week. I bet. Yeah. I bet. And we're recording this now um, and we'll be aired a little later than we've recorded it. And by that time, um, I'll have aired another episode where where I talk about I recently went to um, an eco retreat for a few days to oh, really yeah. just tune out my husband and I and I I have a self-confessed addiction to my phone like many people um, I think social media is great and awful and I didn't use my phone for four days unless it was meaningful conversation with like my son or something and since getting back I had made changes around not carrying my phone around with me everywhere and actually just having times where I allow myself to check social media and it's been amazing it's really yeah. made a difference I can feel it in my nervous system like it yeah it, yeah physically I just notice it as well as mentally it's amazing I I so. you should totally be proud of yourself I think it is when we can like walk away from this and you know you've probably heard the research that people know that the phones are addictive it's kind of like that hit right and yeah. they're very aware that it's addictive and it is just feels so healthy to me to step away yeah and I'm a I'm not a big phone user thank goodness I kind of don't like the phone very much and so that's helped me I've never been addicted to the phone but I the computer right I'm here a lot yeah 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 no more 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 non-computer days yes yes no more <laughs> yeah, non-computer days and I leave my phone I don't mind at all if I hear the phone ringing in the other room I just let yeah. it ring you know if it's emergency my brothers will get a hold of me but you know yeah. it's I just leave it alone and go and then I then I get this where were you how come you didn't answer your phone and I'm like you know I don't have to answer the phone because it rang <laughs> Yeah, I was busy living life. <laughs> I, was, I was living life, right? Exactly. I was doing gardening. I was having fun. <laughs> yeah, that sounds wonderful. So what would be one piece of advice that you would share with our listeners? You know, um, when I think about the thing that um, like sticks with me most in terms of what is workable, is this sort of thing that I've been saying and I've written it in books and I'm I just really truly think this is can be one of the most helpful things and some people will will hear it as a not a not a way I intend it and so I'll say what that is but live your life from the feet up right like when you're struggling and suffering of course take a bit of time but don't let your feet stop moving and when people really start to struggle it's because they slow down and shut down and stop moving mm. um, or they're moving so fast that their lives lives are chaotic right yeah. and so when I think about values-based living I think about them 
values is living in your feet. And I hope people are catching the metaphor, yeah. right? That they're not in your head. And so I'll say, you know, life from the feet up, bring your head, you know, your head's going to come along. It's going to do what it does. Yeah. Bring your heart and engage and you engage with your, by moving, by moving. I love that. I love that. And I, and I feel like I needed to hear that because one of my things, I live with chronic illness and, and movement can be tricky for me sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And one of my intentions for this year, having spent the time earlier in the year at the retreat, is to actually get out and move more. Because when yeah. I do, it feels amazing. And what I notice for myself is when I do that as well, my creativity sparks. Yeah, yeah. I get all these yeah. ideas and I'm like, oh, now I have to kind of keep walking to get back home to run down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, life from the feet up, get out there and, you know, anything. It does, and even if it's a small movement, just anything to yeah. like vary your behavior to get things going again. And, and for some people, it, it might mean slowing down. Yeah. Right. It might, maybe you yeah. have to, you have to see what your feet are doing and what they're pointed toward. Right. Yeah. But, um, I, you know, we, we're so busy here and I think we need to think about our feet yeah. more, if that makes yeah. sense. Absolutely. Even as you're yeah. saying that, what are your feet pointed towards? Like where yeah. are you heading? Yeah. And is that in the direction of your values? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Ah, very good. I'm I'm glad to hear it. And hopefully folks who are listening will have a sense of what I mean. It's not a get over it kind of thing and get on. No, no. Yeah. Yeah. That's not what I'm hearing. Yeah. That's lovely because as well, I think there are lots of people and, you know, certainly plenty of therapists and lots of people I supervise and and work with is about slowing those feet down. Yeah. Which is another pace. Yeah. Yeah know where you're headed instead of like (laughs) yes instead of that kind of chaotic pace and you know what's my intention yeah oh that's beautiful so I asked this next question to everybody and I'm always interested in in the answer so if you could meet your 20 years from now self what do you think your future self would say to you Hmm, that is a that's an interesting question to ask and my mom keeps popping into my head. Yeah. I think it might be something like, I don't, I don't have the exact uh, words, but my mom said to me, sent me this little saying some time ago that said something like, I don't want to go to the grave all tidy and pretty and neat. I'd like to go, you know, broadside, full on, used up and slide in right and said and saying wow what a ride and so I'm hoping that my future self is able to say you weren't afraid to do things that were risky or hard and you uh, engaged in this space where you can say wow what a ride yeah oh that's beautiful I love that Thank you. Yeah. Fantastic. Mom. <laughs> yeah. Enjoy that ride. <laughs> yeah. Just and when it, the, the taste, everything taste emotionally, psychologically, like let yourself be there to taste whatever shows up. Yeah. That's beautiful. So are there any current projects that you're currently working on that you 
can tell us about? Well, I'm writing another book with um, Manuela O'Connell. You know, she and I just um, uh, uh, wrote a self-help book on Act for Anger. And so um, if folks are feeling a little miffed, they can pick that one up and read it. We just finished it. And um, we're getting ready to write a book that's a skills book um, for uh, being put out by uh, the American Association, American Psychological Association, uh, for people who just want sort of the straightforward skills of acceptance and commitment therapy. So that's a big up and coming uh, project that uh, I'm in. And then I just completed a very heartfelt uh, uh, project that took a lot of work, which was. Um, the course that I'm doing for Praxis on um, healing from trauma with ACT, using ACT. Yeah. And that one, um, boy, that was one of those ones where I was not going to say no, but I knew when I said yes that I was going to be uh, sinking a lot of energy and time into it. And I'm really glad I did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they sound really exciting. You perhaps send me all the info for that. And we'll pop that in the show notes as well. You bet. That's fantastic. Yeah. So that's the thing as well, just touching back quickly on the sort of what do we say yes to, what do we say no to, is sometimes we know that things are going to be a lot, but they're really worth it. Yes, they're really worth Isn't it. Isn't it? Which is yeah. very different to saying yes and feeling overwhelmed and then thinking, why on earth did I do that? <laughs> why did I say yes? <laughs> <laughs> you know, a resentful yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> those are the ones you want to be very reflective about and consider them uh, uh, in the future as well. Yeah, because it's not about not, you know, being open to working hard or anything, is it? No. It's just we yeah. want to be working hard in ways that matter to us. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, and aren't taking too much away from the other things that are important in our lives. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. So if people want to find out more about you, get in touch, where can they kind of engage with your work? I mean, I'll put links in. Um, do you have the social media things? So I have a Facebook page called The Heart of Act. I also have a personal Facebook page. It's not public, but it's also if people, you know, reach out, I generally give them access. But The Heart of Act Facebook page and then... I do have a little funny Twitter account that I run and, uh, you know, I just pop things in there, little sayings now and then. Uh, and then I have a website and it's a little lame right now because I'm building a new one, but it's still up and running. <laughs> it's um, PL Consultation Services. I'll send it to you and people yeah. can reach me through there and my podcasts. I'll post your podcast there when it's done. Um, so podcasts and interviews and stuff like that are all on that on that page. Fantastic. This has been an absolute delight, Robin. I, I'm very glad to have been a yes. <laughs> oh good. <laughs> I've enjoyed it too. I'm I'm this was a good yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm sure people will find this really helpful. Ah, wonderful. Thank you. Thank, Thank you for you. inviting me. Cheers. Thank you for sharing this time with me today. I hope your time here was helpful and supportive. If there has been something in this episode that you have found helpful, I invite you to share it with another person you think might benefit. I'd also love it if you'd like to leave a review wherever you tune in. 
Reviews really help to increase awareness of podcasts, meaning I can spread helpful information more widely. All reviews are welcome and much appreciated, as I know they take time out of your day. Music and editing by Nissa Ray. Thanks, Nissa. I wish you all well in your relationship with yourself, and may you go well and go gently. Gently.